Good morning. Uh, we are continuing in our series in Exodus, and uh, for the past few weeks, we've really slowed down to pay attention uh, to the story of the Israelites journeying in their wilderness. Now, right now, at this point in Exodus 17, the people have been, sla- have been saved from slavery, so that's in the past, and they are headed towards the promised land, which is the future, but presently, they find themselves journeying in the wilderness. Now, this long journey uh, started with praise and excitement, but in a matter of a few days, it turned into complaining and grumbling and bickering. It sounds like any good old family road trip, right? It starts with rejoicing and excitement, but after just a few moments, it turns to complaining, bitterness, bickering. Now, the people at this point, Exodus 17, they've been complaining for some time now. And even though God has provided for them every step of the way, still they are not satisfied. They feel as though God had wronged them, and they feel that God owes them. Now, if I can ask you a question, what do you do when you feel as though someone has wronged you? What do you do when you feel as though uh, people owe you? What do you do? Well, probably the first thing to do is to file a complaint, right? A formal complaint. Talk to HR or speak to someone in the complaint department, customer representative, and say, this is my complaint. I feel like I've been wronged. I feel like you owe me. And the Israelites have been doing that for weeks. They've been complaining over and over and over again. But what do you do when you feel like after complaining, you still feel like the other party is not listening. How do you respond? Well, the next step is to file a lawsuit. You formally take the person to court. You issue papers and say, you have wronged me in this way. I will see you in court, sir. And that, and that is what the Israelites are doing in today's passage. You know, in verse 2, it says that the people quarreled with Moses. But that word quarreled literally translates the people brought a suit against Moses. You know, there's a story a couple of years back that received national attention. Uh, There was a British photographer. Uh, He was out in uh, Indonesia in the jungles there taking uh, photographs of macaque uh, monkeys. He was taking these uh, photos, and he was tired, so he put his camera down. And what had happened was when he put his camera down, this one monkey actually picked up the camera and started taking shots. And in fact, he even took a photo of himself. I'm not sure if you saw this, but this is actually a selfie that this monkey took of himself. Now, this became, you know, big, big news. Wow, monkey, even a monkey can take a selfie, right? You know, I, 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 don't, I don't know how to take selfies well. I mean, a monkey's better than me. But even a monkey could take a, a selfie. And what this British photographer did was he published all of his shots in this really, really nice book. Now, what happened was uh, there was an animal protection agency called PETA, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals. And they filed a lawsuit against this British photographer. And they said, 
you do not own the rights to this photo. The copyright belongs to that monkey. He even had a name. His name was Naruto. And this this, uh, animal protection agency said, you cannot make money off of this. You are exploiting this monkey. This monkey has rights. And they sued this British photographer. Now, of course, it went to court. And um, the court court dismissed this case. Uh, They dismissed it because of this profound truth that monkeys can't own copyrights. Monkeys have no right to own our photos. And if they do, how are you to enforce it? You know, occasionally we hear these lawsuit stories that are just ridiculous. Uh, a judge suing a dry cleaners for $67 million because they lost his pants. Or a man suing Michael Jordan and Nike because he looked so much like Michael Jordan. Every time he went out in public, he, was, he said he was being harassed and he felt like he needed to be compensated. We hear of these comical, comical lawsuits, but probably nothing is more audacious and nothing is more shameless, nothing is more comical than the people in the wilderness here suing God. Nothing is more shameless than the people seeking retribution from God because they feel as though God has wronged them. You know the charge that they bring? You know the charge that they bring to, to, to the legal charge they bring is this. God brought us out of Egypt so that he could kill us with thirst. And the only fitting punishment, the only thing that would allow justice to be satisfied is to stone Moses, God's representative. Now when this happens, I mean, even Moses He is shaken. I mean, Moses was a man of great fortitude. Um, Moses was a man who had heard the complaints of the Israelites for weeks. I mean, imagine two million people grumbling. Imagine listening to the complaints of two million people. And this is in the wilderness where there are no sound barriers I mean, imagine at night, everyone is in their tents, and they're all just murmuring and grumbling in their hearts. The whispers of those murmurs of two million people must have been deafening to Moses. I mean, this past Thursday, I was in a car for two hours with three boys, and I was about to lose it because of all the complaining. But Moses endured months of complaining. Two million people just complaining and complaining, and Moses endured it. But at this moment, at this moment, when the people shamelessly bring a lawsuit against God and seek retribution by stoning Moses, Moses, he is shaken. He goes before God and he asks the question, what shall I do? What should I do? What should God do here? Here is an ungrateful generation. People who are saved, people who witness God's redemption, but still doubting God and putting him to the test, still complaining and grumbling, and now legally suing. What should God do? 
This is what God says. He says to Moses, hey, go ahead. Go on ahead. Go on ahead and pick up your staff. Pick up that staff that you used to strike the Nile and bring judgment upon the Israelites. Pick up that staff and go on ahead. And go on ahead and bring with you the elders of the people of Israel. Now at this point, you have to wonder, oh, what's God going to do here? He tells Moses to pick up the staff, the staff of judgment, to go on ahead with the elders. Is God going to make an example out of those elders? I don't know, for me, when I was reading this, I was thinking, man, I just kept thinking about, you know, there's that one character in uh, one of Quentin Tarantino's movies, the bear Jew, you know, the guy with the, the baseball bat. I kept thinking, is Moses, does he have this staff in his hand ready to crush down these elders, ready to smite the leaders of this foolish generation? And God continues, take the staff, go forward. And he says, I want you to hit, I want you to strike the rock at Horeb. Don't strike the elders, but strike the rock. Something happens before this. Before Moses strikes the rock, God tells him in verse 6, this is what he says, before you strike the rock, I will stand before it. I will stand before it. God here, he's saying, hey Moses, I want you to go forward, pick up this staff of judgment and strike the rock, but before you strike the rock, I will stand before it. You know what's going on here in this story? The story of the people complaining and filing a lawsuit? God says, yes, strike it, bring judgment. But don't strike the people. He says, instead, strike me. That's what God is doing. As he stands before this rock, he's saying, strike me. And when judgment falls upon me, you will receive rivers of living water. You know, this small antidote that we find in Exodus 17, 1 to 7, this complaining story is, once again, another example of the people's fear of the people's foolishness and the people's faithlessness in the wilderness. But it's also a clearer picture of God's patience, his persistence, his goodness and his grace in the face of grumbling. More than anything, though, this story in Exodus 17 is an accurate reflection of the gospel of Jesus Christ who was for us that rock at Horeb. Jesus Christ, the one who stood before the staff of judgment. Jesus Christ, the one who himself was struck down for our sins and our disbelief on the cross. And now through whom we drink the waters of living water. This story is once again a good reflection of God's tender love and his mercy as he leads us in the wilderness. That as judgment falls upon him, 
we receive rivers of living water. You know, the Bible is often referred to as a mirror. Because through the Bible, not only do we see God, but we see ourselves. And this wilderness journey is like one of those mirrors that are so clear, that magnify everything. Those mirrors that reflect so much that we can see every pimple, every scar, every blemish, every blackhead. This wilderness journey story, I think, is one that reflects so accurately and clearly who we are and how we respond. You know, Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, he talks about this story, this wilderness narrative of the Israelites traveling in the, in, in the desert. And he says this, these things took place as examples for us. These things, this wilderness story took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. In other words, this wilderness story is for our edification. It's for us to look at and to see ourselves. Friends, this journey narrative is something that we really need to sink our minds and our hearts into this season. You know, God originally intended that this journey, that this journey would be filled with two things, would be filled with trust and thanksgiving. That's what God had originally intended it to be, one of trust and thanksgiving. But instead, we see that this journey was filled instead with complaining and grumbling. You know, this passage caused me to do a very, very simple exercise this week. And it's to count all the hours that I've spent complaining and bickering. And then to count all the hours that I've spent trusting and giving thanks. Take all of this and then put it on a scale. And it caused me to reflect that I've done far more of the former than the latter. That we spent so much more time complaining than trusting and giving thanks. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, what's wrong with a little complaining? I mean, are you really giving a sermon about complaining? I mean, how much harm can complaining do? Right? Especially when complaining can be so fun. Right? Especially when complaining can be so therapeutic. I don't know, have you ever gone to a complaining session before? I'm sure you have with your friends and you know, your, your spouse. But, you know, if you go to these complaining sessions that you have, where all you do is just complain and complain and complain, I mean, it feels good. Right? I, Irene Levine, who is a, a psych professor at uh, NYU, so offers this explanation. She says, you know, complaining provides for us an opportunity to feel understood. She says, complaining is good because through complaining, we feel reassurance and support. Complaining is a great thing because we feel like we're being understood, right? Isn't there like this camaraderie when you complain and then someone else complains and it's just complaining session and it feels good? You know, not only that, but you know, complaining is, um, you know, one of the best social lubricants to starting and maintaining a conversation. You wanna start a conversation with uh, someone you don't know? 
right? You're waiting for the bus, and then you see a couple of people, and you just want to start a conversation. The best way is to say, buses are never on time, isn't it, huh? The person says, yeah, yeah. And you feel like there's this understanding that you have, and you start talking, and you complain about the weather. Oh, you complain about your sports team. You know, you complain about your boss and the government officials. Complaining is a great way to connect. You see, that's why complaining is also so dangerous. Because complaining is such a counterfeit. Complaining is such a counterfeit. Saren Hood Miller, who writes uh, occasionally for Christianity Today, she says this, you know, complaining has the appearance of connection, but in fact it offers instead a false form of intimacy without any substance. Complaining encourages dissatisfaction It encourages dissatisfaction, and it needlessly tears people down. Complaining is a bankrupt form of connection. You know why complaining is so dangerous? Because it offers connection and community. It pretends to offer connection and community, but it actually breeds dissatisfaction, tearing people down. Just two days ago, on the New York Times, there was this op-ed written by Arthur Brooks. And the title of his, um, of his opinion is this, How Loneliness is Tearing America Apart. And Arthur Brooks in this article, he argues that the reason why we find so much outrage and vitriol and bickering and complaining on the internet especially, the reason why everyone is complaining on the internet, he says, is because they are seeking community. They are seeking community through anger and dissatisfaction. They are seeking to be understood and received by others. You know, complaining is a counterfeit to connection and community. And I know just at the surface level, if you just want to get to know someone, just complain about something. And you feel like, oh, we've clicked but you have to imagine, you have to wonder, and you have to think, how much, of my, how much of my community, how much of my friendships, how much of my conversations is based on complaining? A connection without any real substance. You know, if I can go a little bit more deeper, you know, at the root of complaining, at the root of complaining are two things. It's this idea that God has made a mistake and that I deserve better. At the root of complaining is this thought that, you know what, God doesn't know what he's doing. And what the position that I'm in now, I'm entitled to something better. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, third uh, volume of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, he introduces us to a character named uh, Eustace. And uh, Eustace is this whiny, bratty, complaining child. Uh, His full name is Eustace Clarence Scrub. I mean, you can even tell by his name. What a scrubby name. Eustace Clarence Scrub. He calls his parents by their first name. I mean, that says it all. But here is this whiny kid. He's a miserable wreck. He hates life. He has this low tolerance for discomfort. He is disgusted disagreeable always. He's the spoiled, whiny, whiny little child who complains about everything. 
And the book continues on where he and his cousins, they, they go on this journey. They enter into Narnia. And as with all the other stories, Aslan, the king who represents God, he calls them to, to embark on this journey. They go on this, uh, this ship called the Down Treader, Dawn Treader, and they're supposed to go on this mission that Aslan has sent them on. Now, Eustace, from the very beginning of this journey, he's a miserable wreck. He hates it. He's complaining and whining about everything. And that complaining leads him to miss all the magic, all the beauty that surrounds him as they travel through this magical land called Narnia. Now, Eustace, what happens is they arrive, they, they enter into this uh, remote island, and Eustace, he gets lost in a cave that's filled with gold. This cave was once owned, um, possessed by a dragon. And in that cave, Eustace actually is transformed into a dragon. And C.S. Lewis writes this because he wants to make the point that Eustace what he was on the outside, he eventually became, or what he was on the inside, he eventually became on the outside. Eustace turned into a dragon because that's who he was on the inside. He was this complaining, never happy, dissatisfied, complaining, grumbling young kid, and he becomes this dragon. And through this transformation, he realizes how ugly he was. Now, while he's there, Aslan, the lion, comes. And he starts to claw off, he starts to scratch off the layers of the dragon's skin. And through that, Eustace goes back to becoming a boy again. He is a changed boy. He is a renewed boy. After seeing the ugliness inside, he goes through the painful process of taking off that old bitter self as God himself claws that away takes it away. Friends, in this journey that we are on now, we are not without hope. Despite all of our grumbling and all of our complaining, we have hope because we are still journeying on, aren't we? Because we're still walking this journey and because God is still leading us. And God, what he desires for us on this journey is that we would trust in him and be filled with praise and thanksgiving at what he has done. You know, the human mind has this uncanny ability to perceive time. We humans have this God-like divine ability to understand time. I think humans are probably the only species in this world that can remember, that can go back in time, and that can also look forward, that can also hope. And that's what God had intended for us in this journey. He intends that we look back at what he has done in saving us and look forward to where he is calling us, to where he is leading us to that promised land. And currently, presently, while we are in this wilderness journeying on, he calls us to do those two things. Look back and give thanks. Look forward and trust. And so this 
Thanksgiving season. I um, want to share with you this. Philippians 2, 14 to 15. This is Paul. He says this, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in this world. In this wilderness journey, continue to look back and give thanks. Continue to look forward and trust. And may we rejoice and give thanks as we reflect upon all that the Lord has done. Join me in prayer at this time.